Thank you, Gordon and Barbara, and welcome to our morning service this morning. I'm asking you to turn to John 14 <laughs> this morning. We finished our study on the book of Galatians last week, and uh, before I begin another series that will take us quite a while to go through a, a book or a passage of Scripture, I want to do a short four messages uh, from John 14 and related passages uh, over these next four weeks, kind of as a little break and, and time off. And I call it the Christian future because I want to speak to you about what's in store for us as believers, as the church of Jesus Christ and as the bride of Christ, and what's going to happen uh, in our future. You know, often when we talk about prophecy, and I love prophecy, I think you do too, uh, but we talk about the negative side of it, and we talk about the terrible things that are going to come on this world, and, and there are such things coming, of course, in the future. But sometimes we don't speak enough about the good things that are coming to you and me as believers in Jesus Christ, and our future, what's, gonna, what's in store for us, is actually a very great thing. So I want to talk about four different things in these four weeks today. Uh, the fact that we are engaged to Christ. We're betrothed to Christ as his coming bride. That's great news. I want to talk about that today. And then secondly, we have a wedding date. That's called the rapture. We have a wedding date set by the Father uh, who will take us home uh, to be married. And so the tribulation period, thirdly, where usually we talk about all of those things from the book of Revelation that's going, going to be going on on the earth, we'll be in heaven, in the Father's house, enjoying the blessings of meeting loved ones who have gone before us, of being in the Father's house, of being married to the bridegroom who is Christ. It's a great time for us. And then lastly, we're going to the reception. We're going to the wedding supper which is the thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth where we live and reign with Christ uh, and enjoy all the things that are go on. So I just want you to know we, we have a great future ahead of us and things that we ought to, ought to actually look forward to. You know, we are the bride of Christ, though we haven't been married to him yet. We're engaged or betrothed to him. Listen to Ephesians 5:23 for example again. The husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church. He is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. And so we belong to him as his bride. Now, the fact is, as I've said, we're still betrothed or engaged. In 2 Corinthians 11, Paul introduces that chapter by saying to the Corinthian church, I'm jealous over you with a godly jealousy, for I have betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. And so we are waiting for that marriage time to come. Yet in the biblical picture, of course, 
uh, of betrothal times and engagement times, unlike our custom, you know, here in the States where those are often broken, Christ will never break such an engagement with us, and we will never and cannot break it with him. So many passages, but Peter said it, that we are going to an inheritance, incorruptible, undefiled, that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you. It's reserved, and it can't be broken. So, again, I love prophecy, but you remember twice that Jesus, in describing those things that are coming on the earth, called them uh, times and seasons. And in, in Acts chapter 1, he says, it's not for you to know the times and seasons. Basically, they're coming, and you can know, uh, but you're not a part of those. And then in 1 Thessalonians 5, when he's ready to describe the tribulation period, he says, you have no need that I write unto you of the times and seasons because you're not going to be here. And so we ought to also have our mind on things ahead. So we are engaged. Betrothal, espousal are those more biblical or Jewish words that uh, describe our time that we live in now as the bride of Christ. A lot of different cultures have a lot of different customs or variations of what they do in these uh, engagement times or, or betrothal times. In some cultures, there's a bride price, you know, actually, and in, in, in the Jewish culture, there was too uh, a bride price where you buy basically from the family or from the father, the bride-to-be. We have dowries, hope chests, and things like that that go with uh, the bride as she's married. We have this custom of giving a ring at, at engagement time, you know. The poor guy has to kneel down there, you know, and, and uh, hope for the best as he asks her <laughs> to marry him. And sometimes engagements are permanent, which we are going to see the, in the biblical picture of the Jewish wedding, it was a permanent thing. In our engagement times, they're not necessarily, they, they can and are often broken, sometimes for good reasons, but, but uh, different, different things in different cultures. We're going to try to look at the biblical culture as the New Testament presents it of how we are engaged to uh, the bridegroom, which is Jesus Christ. In essence, folks, the betrothal period that we live in in the New Testament is a time of evangelism. It's a time of a great commission to gather the, the bride of Christ, all who will come, and prepare themselves for that time of the marriage. So I want you to, to look with me, if, if you will, as, as today we will look at that first part, and it is just that engagement part. And we're in John chapter 14 here in our service. We read the first four verses. This will be my text for today's message and also for next week's message when we talk about the rapture or our wedding date, as I call it, because that's also, of course, here in John 14. So notice these things with me from these first three or four verses. First of all, God is gathering a bride for the Son. And God, first of all, is searching. Now, when we read these verses, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. In other words, we're going to the Father's house, and God uh, is making room for those who would come and be part of the bride of Christ. 
and all of you, I hope, that I'm speaking to, uh, perhaps, have, have done that. You've received them. So notice this Father's house. You remember uh, in the Gospels, in Matthew 22 and in Luke 14, there's a parable given called the, mar- the parable of the marriage supper. And this is that story, that parable, where there's a father who is preparing the marriage and the marriage supper for his son. And so he sends out invitations to pe- for people to come to the marriage supper. And the, the problem in the parable is that people begin to make excuses, and so they don't come. And the, the, the messengers come back, and they say, well, they all made excuses. And he said, uh, well, then go out again and uh, ask anyone to come. And they did, and they came back a third time and said, and the father said, well, yet there is room. And remember, he said, go out into the highways and hedges and compel them to come in. And that, that parable, of course, then is a, is a picture of the, the marriage supper being prepared in the father's house. And we are those messengers going out saying, come to the marriage supper. Come and, and be part of it. And so we have those great whosoever's. In, in the Bible. As a matter of fact, in, those, in the parable, it says, go out and call the maimed, the lame, the halt, and the blind. And I'm glad he did that so I can come, you know. So anyone, whosoever will, may come. Now, you come through faith in Christ, as we will see, and, and uh, that's saying yes uh, to being part of the bride. But all who do say yes and all who do uh, accept the invitation to the wedding and the wedding supper are part of and they make up the bride of Christ. Now, as I speak about the church then uh, in these messages, I'm speaking about that whole body of Christ, that whole bride of Christ. Sometimes we call it the, the universal church or concept of the church. So everyone from the day of Pentecost until that rapture happens, anyone who has received Jesus Christ as Savior is part of that church. And that makes up the bride of Christ. Now, we have churches uh, like ours here today and many around the world that are meeting today. In that universal church, there are no lost people and everyone who is there is saved. Whereas in our local churches, it's possible that some are not saved. And and we have kind of a mixed uh, group sometimes. Most are, of course. That's why we meet together. But remember that we're talking about that larger body. Now, I have secondly... Don't be troubled. So again, then the, the very well-known expression in verse 1, let not your heart be troubled. Why? You believe in God, believe also in me. Don't be troubled. Don't let your heart uh, be troubled while you're engaged. It will happen. <laughs> there will be a wedding, and your bridegroom will come for you. So let not your heart be troubled. I think that no doubt he was speaking directly to these disciples. After all, this is the John 14 is the night before he's crucified. And they're going from the upper room out to the Garden of Gethsemane. And they're going to see some terrible things that night. So don't, don't let your heart be troubled. You're believing people. You believed in me. So uh, keep the faith, so to speak. He knew that... He was going to be crucified that night. He knew that that would be a terrible time. They would see terrible things. Uh, over the next few days, they, they will wonder what happened. 
and then all of those 40 days that he appears uh, at various different places, there's a lot of problems in those days. And, and the whole book of Acts is, is full of persecutions and troubles that the disciples will, uh, will encounter. And eventually, every one of them will die a martyr for the Lord. I mean, for them, it's a pretty tough time coming. And yet, look at verse 27 in this same chapter, uh, chapter 14. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. And again, let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. And so folks, I think that's a great message for us. We're still in that time. We're 2,000 years later, but we're still in this time. And we can get pretty troubled in the days in which we live, can't we? We can look around at the world we, we live in and we see it getting worse, and it will get worse up until that time. And believers living at the end time, which we very well may be, uh, suffer things, troubled in our hearts, and the Lord says to you, let not your heart be troubled. You've believed in God. You've believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, that's good enough. Our New Testament says in the end times, there will be perilous times that will come, that there, many will depart from the face, that there will be false prophets among you, all of those kinds of warnings to us. Let not your heart be troubled. Marriage time is coming. I may have told you this story, but you know, uh, when Ann and I were engaged, and uh, this was in Chicago where she lived with her parents, and it was either the night, I think it was the night before we got married or a night or two before, and we were at her, her home, a little three-flat building in Chicago, and you know, Ann is Ukrainian, and her, her mom and dad were Ukrainian and Russian, and uh, here we were planning and getting ready for the big day the next day, and her mom takes me aside. And in her Russian accent, says to me, if you hurt her, I kill you. <laughs> and I thought to myself, this is Chicago. And there's probably a Ukrainian mafia somewhere, you know. But I lived through it and she didn't kill me. And just as a footnote there, she was the sweetest lady you ever met, and we laughed about that all of our lives, and she lived with us the last 10 years of, of her life, and uh, just a sweet, a sweet time. But troublous times are coming, in other words, so let not your heart be troubled. So first of all, we, the father is searching and gathering the bride for his son. Secondly, this is a universal proposal. So notice again in verse 1, you believe in God, well, believe also in me. Notice you are qualified to come, so just say yes. Here's an interesting thing about that expression, you believe in God, believe also in me. The word believe is there twice. And in both cases, it's exactly the same word. I mean by that, it is an imperative spelled to the letter exactly the same in both places. In other words, it's a command both times. You do have to believe in God after all. You, you really don't come to Jesus Christ without believing in God. Who do you think Jesus is after all? And so there's really a double command here. You believe in God and you must believe in me also. 
Remember these expressions in the Scripture, Hebrews 11:6. without faith it is impossible to please him, for he that cometh to God must believe that he is, first of all, and secondly, that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Believe in God and believe also in me. And so James said it this way, 2.19, you believe that there is one God, you do well. Well, even the devils believe that and they tremble. And not enough just to believe in God, though you have to. Believe also in me. So in verse 6 of our text, he will say, because I am the way and the truth and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. So we see this universal proposal, and I tell you this, there's some good news. And the good news is that God wants you, and Jesus Christ wants you to be part of his bride. There's a wonderful passage in 1 Timothy chapter 2 where Paul is uh, giving Timothy instructions about evangelism and reaching out to people. And three times he uses the word A-L-L, all. The first time is in verse 1 when he says, Therefore I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving thanks be made for all men. We're supposed to be praying for them. We're supposed to be praying for our lost neighbors and lost people who don't know Christ as Savior, that they would come and be part with us. The second thing is in verse 4 where he says, who, speaking of God, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. God wants you. You can truly say to a sinner, God has loved you and God wants you to be saved. And then thirdly in verse 6, who, again God, gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. In other words, Jesus paid for you. He paid for your sins, for your salvation on the cross of Calvary. He paid the ransom debt. So pray for them and tell them that God wants them to be saved and explain to them that Jesus Christ died for them. So that's a great thing when we think about this universal proposal it sounds funny to put it this way, but I'll say Jesus Christ wants them to marry him. If we are going to be his bride in that vernacular, we're going to be married to the bridegroom. And God wants that, and Jesus wants you also. So, secondly, believe also in me then. You're supposed to do that. Can you, can you see the, the bridegroom and he's come to this girl, and he's got a ring, and he kneels down in front of her, and he's got that little box, and he opens it up, and there's a ring there. And uh, he says, will you marry me? And she says, oh, I'm, I'm so surprised, I don't know what to say. And he says, what? Well, say, yes. <laughs> That's what you say. Well, you... You go to a lost sinner and you say, Jesus loves you and died for you and wants you to be saved. And he says, well, I'm not sure what I should do. Oh, I tell you what you should do. You should say yes to him in that sense, proposing. So to believe, believe also in me, is to have faith. I mean, when we exercise our faith to receive Jesus Christ as our Savior, and I'm not excluding 
the repentance of our sins, the conviction of the Holy Spirit, and all of that, as you know. It's just that uh, we're saying yes to him when we exercise our faith in him. Now, a reminder, uh, he says, believes all, believe also in me. I've, I've said a, a number of times that coming to Christ is very broad and it's very narrow. It's very broad because of that word whosoever. It's broad in the sense that, that uh, all may come. And, and I'm glad for that. But it's very narrow in the sense, but you have to come through him. I am the way, truth, and the life. No man comes but by me. So believe in, believe in me, the broad road in the Bible and the narrow road. You remember that old illustration about the evangelist who was preaching on uh, the one way to heaven and a lady came up to him after the service and said, well, Reverend, you know, I kind of just disagree with you there. I think there are lots of ways to go to heaven. And she said, it's kind of like if I want to go to the post office, I may go down Broadway and turn right and go to the post office. Somebody else may go down the freeway and get off at that exit. And somebody else may go this way and go all the back streets. But in the end, we all get to the post office. And the evangelist said, well, that's a nice story. The only problem with it is, is when you die, you're not going to the post office. When you die, you go to heaven, and there's only one way to get there, and that's through Jesus Christ. So you have to believe in me. After all, would you say yes to some guy who, uh, or, or uh, ask some girl if uh, she said, well, I've said yes to four other guys, and I'll say yes to you, and then I'm going to make up my mind which one I want to do. <laughs> what would you do, you know? No, you, you say yes to Jesus Christ because he's the only way, and he's the only one who can save you. So in this idea of being engaged to the Lord, we have a, a, a bride and we have a universal proposal, and then thirdly, the engagement. Now, verse 2 says, In my father's house, then, are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you I go to prepare a place for you. That's as much as a promise as I have here, first of all. In other words, in my father's house, there's room for you. We go there to be married. Remember, in the Jewish wedding, the marriage takes place when you go, to the, you go get your bride and bring her back to the father's house. And so a marriage is going to take place in the father's house. Come and be a part of me in my father's house, in other words, is, is what is happening here. And I promise, or else I would have told you differently. I'm not lying to you. I promise uh, that this will be the case. In my father's house are many mansions. I know I'm giving personal illustrations here today because I know those so well. When, when I brought Anne home to my father's house the first time, she, she had never met them and they had never met her, but we were engaged. We were in school up in Minneapolis and my home was in Ohio. And so I, I go home and I'm going to bring her in the door the very first time. And uh, my, my dad was a big man, six foot three, about 300 pounds. He was also a Ph.D. and a professor at Miami University in Oxford, Ohio. But you never know what Dad's going to do. So I come to the door with my, you know, uh, bride-to-be. He comes and opens the door, all 300 pounds of him, and he's got a T-shirt on that says, Property of Tijuana Jail. 
It doesn't quite cover his stomach. And he says, I'm just the cook around here, but come on in anyway. And that was the first introduction to the father's house. And then the, the second was I introduced him to my oldest brother next. And, and Don says, well, Rick, she's a lot prettier than you said she was. <laughs> so I, I want you to know that our father's house is going to be a lot better <laughs> welcoming than that was. But it takes place there. We're engaged and we're betrothed. Now, a few comments about this betrothal that is from a, from a Jewish point of view. The betrothal took place long before the marriage. Uh, in, those, in that culture, it was, it was prearranged and an agreement was made. Even a price was paid uh, for that and a promise was made. So the promise called the consent was made at the betrothal time. This could have been a year before. It could have been years before, sometimes even arranged by the parents. But it was sometime long before uh, the service that would take place in the father's house. And so the vows were made there, and they were permanent. That's why in the, in the biblical picture, when there's a, simply a betrothal, Sometimes they are called husband and wife, but they're not actually married yet. Just the promise has been made. There's been no physical contact yet, but that's the way the culture was. Uh, Linsky in his, in his commentary and, and many others, but he says it like this. The vows of the marriage were made at the betrothal, which was always public, and none were needed when the groom came to take his bride away. Now, in our custom, in, our, in, our, uh, in America, and our English customs, is that the vows are made the same day as the honeymoon. In other words, the, the consent in the same day the consummation is made. And so we make the vows there, and we make that public acceptance and our public vows. You, know, you want to know the moment when two people are married in God's eyes and also legally? It's when they say, I do. It's when one promises to the other, I will do this. And once they do that, you can say anything else you want, but that's all there is to it. You know, the one, the one pastor bragged one time and said, I, I can do a, a marriage with five words. Oh, no, you can't do it with five words. Yes, I can. How would you do it? I would look at her and say, do you? And I'd look at him and say, do you? And then I'd say, done. As long as the promises are made, the marriage is good. And then the consummation of that physically comes afterwards. We do all of that on one day. But I'm saying in those days, they did it uh, separated like that. So our future groom will not break his promise. In our culture, you can because the vows have not been made yet. And if something's wrong or some mistake has been made, that, that engagement really ought to be and can be broken. But when the promise is made, you're, you're done. And that's, that's the way it was in their culture. Now, there's a time of preparation then next to that. Notice also in verse 2. So he says, if it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. The place has already been called many mansions. I go to prepare this place for you in the Father's house where there are many mansions. Now, I want to say a word about those mansions because it's always been kind of a fun 
point of conversation. Is it really a mansion? You know, the word means dwelling place. Do you have just a little one-room apartment, or what do you have up there in heaven? What is it? And so a little, a little insight into this. First of all, the word is mane, M-O-N long E, mane. And that form of that word is only used two times in the New Testament, and both of them in this chapter. One of them is here in our verse, translated mansion, and the other one is in verse 23. Verse 23 says, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. We will come to him and make our home, our mane, with him. So the only two places that that form of the word is used are those two, mansion and home. There you go. Now, that word is a form of a very common word, meno, which means to remain. Meno, that's the verb form of it, is used over 100 times in the New Testament. It's used, for example, or it's translated to continue, to remain, to dwell, to tarry, to abide, even to endure, to remain, meno. It, that different form of this word is used four other times in this chapter. I'll just give you the translations of them. In verse 10, that word is translated dwells. In verse 16, it's translated abide. In verse 17, it's translated dwells. And in verse 25, it's translated present or to be present. So there you go. That place that the Lord has gone to prepare when we go and are married to him where we will live, that place, call it what you want to call it. Uh, but it seems like it could be a mansion to me. As a matter of fact, you know, you know where it's described? Revelation 21 and 22. Revelation 21 uh, says uh, that in those days, John uh, writing said, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. The new Jerusalem is that mansion in the sky. That's the home where we will live. Now, we have part of it. It's not all just yours. It's all the whole church will live there. But you know what? Revelation gives us, gives us dimensions of that. And if you take those dimensions and you set that place in America, one side of it will be at the Atlantic seacoast and the other side would be at the Mississippi River. And it's just as wide as it is long and it's just as tall <laughs> as it is wide. So that's a pretty big place, pretty big home. Mansion's fine with me. I don't have a problem with, with that word. But, of course, the idea is it's a dwelling place. Now, again, where was, the, where was the first place you and your wife or your husband lived? What kind of a place was it? We were poor uh, seminary students, and, and we rented a little one-bedroom, ground-level apartment, you know, in a little apartment house in St. Paul, Minnesota, and we were glad to have it. As far as I was concerned, that was my mansion because my queen was there. So the two of us were happy as two bugs in a rug. I mean, we... We loved it there and no problem. Wherever the Lord is, I think you will be happy with that, won't you? That new Jerusalem, 
That city foursquare is your home. You know what Psalm 16 says? In thy presence is fullness of joy, and at thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. As long as you're with the Lord and with your bridegroom, call it what you want. <laughs> Give me whatever space I need. I'll be happy as long as I'm with you. So there's this engagement, and then there is a preparation for that. And so one other thing that I need to emphasize from verse 3 and 4, and that is there's a promise now. Promise is made. There's a promise to wait for him. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. There's his promise. And we're going to talk about that, by the way, uh, next week. I will come again and receive you unto myself. That basically is the rapture. And that's the wedding date. And it's coming. That where I am, there you may also be. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. I'm going to come back and receive you. You wait for me. And you keep yourself for me. Just a few of these kinds of verses in the New Testament. 1 Thessalonians 1, 9 and 10. They themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who has delivered us from the wrath to come. We're delivered from that that time of tribulation. Wait for him. Galatians 5, 5. We through the Spirit wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. And we look. Philippians 3.20, our conversation is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 4.18, while we look not at things which are seen, but at things which are not seen. Things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Those are the things that we look for. And so we're waiting and we're looking, and we're keeping our promises for the day that we see Christ. Tonight after the service, Anne's flying in from Atlanta. She's down there with the kids, uh, having a good time, eating a lot of food. Meanwhile, I'm eating leftovers. But, but, uh, <laughs> but she's been down there, and she'll fly home tonight. Now I'm going to leave after the evening service, and I'm going to drive out to the airport, and I'm going to look for her. And you know what? There will be thousand people there, or thousands, and cars and buses and airplanes, and I'm looking for one person. That's all. I'm going to wait outside that door. When I see her come, that's the person I'm looking for because that's the person I love. Well, you love the Lord Jesus Christ. You've never seen him. You've not seen him yet. But you're looking for that time when he will come. And when you see him face to face, all of the waiting and all the looking will be worth it. Now, because that's true, notice secondly, keep yourself for him then. Renald Showers, who's a good premillennial writer and he writes a lot on prophetic things, he said this, once the bridegroom paid the purchase price, the marriage covenant was established and the young man and woman were regarded as husband and wife. From that moment on, the bride was declared to be consecrated or sanctified or set apart exclusively for her bridegroom. 
What does Jesus want of us? Well, let me show you in this chapter, verse 15. If you love me, keep my commandments. He's going away. These are commands in his absence. You love me, keep my commandments. Look at verse 21. He who has, uh, my, uh, he who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my, by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him or her, of course. And one last one, which we've already read, but I'll read it again, is 23, verse 23. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. What are we supposed to do, folks? We're supposed to wait and look, and we're supposed to keep ourselves pure for him. Now, we're the, we're the bride of Christ. We're the church of Jesus Christ, everyone from Pentecost to the rapture. And we will be that forever. We will be his bride. We will be part of that royal family forever. It's worth it to keep yourself for a little while, isn't it? Isn't it worth it to live for him and keep his commandments and do those things that are, that are pleasing in his sight? Now, I'll go on next week to talk about the wedding date, which is the rapture, and after that, the tribulation or the wedding in the Father's house, and after that, the reception, the marriage supper for a thousand years on this earth. And I guess I should close this message by saying, have you said yes to him? Maybe if you're watching uh, on, on your computer or whatever right now, have you said yes to the one who wants to marry you, who loved you and gave himself for you? If you haven't done that, folks, do it today and say, yes, I need the Lord Jesus Christ. And not only to escape all of the terrible things that are coming, but to have these great blessings and live with them forever. All right, stand with me if you will. I love these kinds of studies. And I just thought that looking at these things from a more positive point of view would be a, an encouragement to all of us, and I hope that they will be. Let's pray together. Now, Father, thank you. In the midst of, of much scriptural writing and information about the last days, the judgments, the terrible times that are coming on those who don't believe, the eternal destination of those who don't believe, in the midst of all of that, we have these wonderful promises and this wonderful future for the church of Jesus Christ, the bride of Christ. And we thank you for it. So help us, Father, in a few weeks here to refresh our hearts and encourage our hearts about what we know about what is coming for the church. So bless now, Father, also, I pray that in all of this, someone who doesn't know Christ as Savior would be convicted and burdened and realize that their sin is going to separate them from Christ for eternity. Rather, they would come to him and say yes to his invitation and repent of their sins and accept Christ as their Savior. So, Father, bless as we sing. Speak to our hearts in the way that we should. Encourage us, convict us, all that we need. We'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Gordon's going to come and lead us in the song.